Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we talk about what's behind a spike in the cost of rent in many Canadian cities and what different levels of government should be doing about it. We take a closer look at just how viable, how affordable, and how necessary a national dental care plan is after it was made the centerpiece of a political deal between the Liberals and the NDP on Tuesday. But first, one month after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we get the perspective from Kyiv about life in a war zone, why Ukraine has managed to fight off its bigger neighbor, and what it needs from its allies to continue to do so. And we look ahead to a rare emergency meeting of NATO nation leaders to gauge what kind of help might be on the way for Ukraine. A month ago at this moment, Ukraine was enjoying a final few minutes of what had been a fragile peace. As we were on air a month ago, Russia's invasion began. We had little idea of what exactly would happen next. Now we know Ukraine did indeed defend itself. Russia's military proved surprisingly awful at initiating most of its initial plans. The Ukrainian flag flies tonight in almost every city that matters, but the human cost has been massive. 3.6 million people have fled the country. Millions more are displaced internally. Some cities under siege continue to run low on necessities. Russia has destroyed 1,500 civilian and other structures. And today the U.S. says Russia's military is committing war crimes by targeting civilians. We also know that allies united to help imposing unprecedented sanctions on Russia, sending lethal aid to Ukraine, and that Ukraine has become a symbol of a much bigger fight, a battle for freedom. Ukraine's president has become the embodiment of that desire and that defiance. Vladimir Zelensky released a video on social media today calling on the world to stand in solidarity with Ukraine on the one-month anniversary, and he did so entirely in English. The war of Russia is not only the war against Ukraine. Its meaning is much wider. Russia started the war against freedom as it is. This is only the beginning for Russia on the Ukrainian land. Russia is trying to defeat the freedom of all people in Europe, of all the people in the world. It tries to show that only crude and cruel force matters. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Well, one person who sits in parliament with him is Kira Rudik. She's a member of the Ukrainian parliament and leader of Holos, or Voice. She joins me now from Kyiv. Kira, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I was thinking back to the the fact that it's been a month now since this all started, and I was wondering, a month ago, what were where were you on on this evening a month ago, and what were you thinking? Uh, a day before war, you mean? Yeah. So we were uh, at the parliament, and uh, it was a very intensive day. Uh, we were getting ready. We knew that Russians may or may not attack. And we are getting ready to uh, at least special state, status, not the martial one. And we were fighting about some legislation pieces. Uh, and we were concentrated on, you know, down to the earth things. Right. I remember nobody really believed that Russia would attack. However, we knew that we have to be ready. And the anticipation of our intelligence as well as uh, the other intelligence would be that he would attack uh, from the east, and uh, that it will be a, like an escalation in our eastern regions. And then we went to bed, thinking that next day will be complicated because uh, too many things to do in the parliament. And we woke up uh, to them explosions, explosions in Kiev. 
And um, I remember two days before, we were going through the legislation pieces and one of the initiatives my animal welfare group was pushing through was uh, to forbid uh, fireworks in the cities because we have so many uh, so many uh, uh, soldiers and we had uh, too many pads that were affected by that right. and so uh, on the day one of war uh, my first thought during when I woke up of the explosions was like geez we do really have to forbid fireworks Fireworks for pets. Yeah, that's a deep, that's something we talk about here too. It scares them, right? Yes, but it was not fireworks. It was explosion. It was first shelling of the city and it was really scary. So much has changed in the last month and we continue to talk about it, but I know it seems that the bombardments, bombardments of cities, including where you are, has only increased. Right. Uh, we see that Putin has changed tactics. And they are not getting uh, too much luck uh, on, on fighting on the ground. That's why they're using their um, domination in the air. And this is why they, uh, they are attacking us from the air. And it's easier because we actually cannot fight them back. So our army, uh, no matter how brave they are, no matter how much support we're giving, uh, cannot actually fight Russians in the air. I know you were touring some of the some of the damage today, uh, an apartment specifically. What is it? I mean, what is the atmosphere like when you go visit these places? People must know who you are. Uh, uh, what is it like for you to go and witness this too? Because the devastation to what was normal people's normal lives is 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 hard to watch. It's hard to watch. So, uh, you know, the the war is a chaos, and it turns like a couple of months, more than one month to make everything in order because it, the war is very emotional and uh, people usually don't know what to do. People usually are not ready to that. And this is why being like governmental official, a member of parliament makes makes it a little bit more organized. When you come, they know that you are like an authority and you can like uh, bring it, bring a little bit of organization there. At least you can call um, all them uh, necessary services if they have not arrived yet. But they're weird, not weird. Uh, the thing that I notice every time I come to the place that was bombarded, there are many people there. And they're usually coming to see if there is a help needed, and they're usually coming with something. So um, you remember the house where the half of the wall was off? Yep. So there were literally many people who came in with the more warm clothes and food. Uh, thinking that, um, that the citizens who are left right now with all their belongings spread spread around, uh, grateful that they are still alive, that they would need something to eat or warm clothes. Mm -hmm. And it was so touching that people were not afraid. They just came thinking, okay, I will bring some help and then we will see. I was going to ask you that, Kira, in the month that you've been very busy, uh, speaking about what's happening in Kyiv, speaking what, about what's happening in Ukraine, what the country needs to defend itself. But what has surprised you the most about, about what's happened about your country in the last month? Well, I don't think anybody, including ourselves, expected that we will be fighting so hard. Uh, I don't think that anybody in the world thought that we will be standing for so long. And I'm impressed of how all the differences that we had just like a day before war became 
um, irrelevant on the day one, and they're still irrelevant on the day 28. And they uh, are bringing us closer together. And we right now, not only becoming like one nation, we are becoming a different nation, nation that knows exactly what it stands for, what we are fighting for, and which is more relevant, uh, what we are ready to die for. That our principles and all the democratic values, they are actually principles and they are actually democratic values. Mm -hmm. And these are not just words. These, these are exactly things that you that you are training for. You know that you will have to protect them with your life. And this is very weird how over time things change. You know, about democracy, my favorite story is that Russian forces right now, they try to do this political capture of the city when they are kidnapping a mayor, then installing another person and saying, this will be your mayor now. And this, for us, this is so uh, out of this world. We are saying like, but this doesn't work like that. You're crazy. Like, what are you talking about? And for Russians, it is normal. And they're thinking like, yeah, it was such a good idea. Why? And this is like a huge difference that has grown between us and has always been between us. This is a difference between democratic country and, uh, and uh, country ruled by tyrant. And this is basically what we are fighting for because we want to protect the way that we do understand that you cannot kidnap a mayor and install a different person. This is the democracy we believe in. And it's not like an empty word anymore. This is exactly what we, uh, what we are standing for. I'm speaking with Kira Rudnik, member of the Ukrainian parliament and party leader of Holos, or Voice. Uh, we're speaking to her tonight from Kiev on what really is the one-month anniversary of the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, after this, I wanted to ask you more. I asked you what, what has pleasantly surprised you the most. I want to ask you what has disappointed you the most, and certainly your expectations for these very important meetings happening in Brussels um, later today. We'll be back with that. I'm back with Kira Rudik, member of the Ukrainian parliament, party leader of Holos, or Voice. Uh, she's speaking to me tonight from Kiev on what is just about the one-month anniversary of this invasion by Russia. We asked Kira, or I asked Kira, what, what it surprised her the most, and it was the ability of Ukraine to fight back. And the idea that this notion of fighting for democracy, fighting for freedom, is more than words now, that in the last month it has really morphed from something that people believed and thought about to something that is deeply now ingrained in a lot of people in Ukraine. I asked you what surprised you the most. I guess I wanted to ask you what's disappointed you the most in the last month. Well, surprisingly, it would not be NATO's reaction. We knew that since um, Second World War, uh, allies were always like, slow into getting into a fight. Uh, after my work with many, many countries throughout this month, I'm disappointed the most that there are still countries who uh, don't uh, accept the fact that black is black and white is white, who are really asking me questions like, well, well why don't you think that Putin didn't have any choice? Uh, countries uh, that uh, benefit from the war and are very clear about it, or countries where officials are trying to fulfill their political wishes and their political uh, tasks uh, instead of uh, 
uh, coming together. This was extremely disappointing, and this is the work that uh, is unpleasant, but you have to continue to get on with their members of parliament, answer tough questions uh, from Russian propaganda, and be able to look them in the eye and say, uh, no, this is not how the friendly country behaves. This is not how friends behave. Uh, regarding the NATO reaction, well, of course, we expected a different reaction. Of course, we would think that uh, there will be more active involvement, uh, especially uh, with uh, uh, not direct involvement of NATO, but uh, at least giving us the jets to be able to fight. Like we are saying, we are not expecting uh, NATO forces on our ground. However, there are like around 16,000 people from all over the world who came into Ukraine with the intention to fight. And these are official numbers. And I'm super grateful to each and every of them. But we are not asking NATO forces on our ground, but we are asking the weaponry. Like, give us that um, rod so we would be able to get a fish. Uh, right. if, if you cannot help us with that. And that is disappointing because... I, in my, again, in my heart, I know that at some point they will come along, but for every single day that they are procrastinating, um, my people are dying. And this is extremely frustrating and, and, and this is painful, especially that we have already gone through that hundred years ago, exactly through that. And I, 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 I mean, we spoke about this a few weeks ago. We, we are continuing to watch the city of Mariupol be destroyed. We are continuing to watch incidents like the the shopping center in Kiev be destroyed. Continuing to watch civilians, including children, die in these bombardments. Um, what would you tell them to make this more urgent, or at least you understand the diplomacy? I know that, but it feels like after a month that now it's time to make some tough decisions on NATO's side. Um. It seems right now, with all the help and support that we are getting, that we are getting it so we just can continue fighting. And that the world is watching us and cheering up. And we are grateful for cheering up. But we do need the effective measures. We do need an ability to actually win uh, this war. We do need the ability to stop um, to stop uh, all the devastation, all the death, uh, everything that's happening on my, in my country, everything that's happening to my people, to innocent people who didn't do anything wrong. Uh, we are just right now at war with Russia because of our existence, because, uh, because Putin does not uh, give us a chance to and give us a right to exist. This is what he was very clear about. He said that he does not believe that uh, Ukraine and Ukrainians is a separate nation. He saw that it was just a mistake. And this is what we are paying for with our lives. And what it feels like right now that the world is watching and cheering us up. Um, I was uh, talking with one of my fellow partners in, from Israeli Knesset. And he said that they made up this very good um, very good analogy saying that NATO is a bodyguard who is watching Ukraine being raped. And I think it's a very good, uh, it's, a, it's a very good analogy because the world is watching and uh, saying, yeah, we will protect you, but without actually protecting us. And uh, uh, if there was a concern if, or there was a hope that sanctions will stop Putin. Right now, after a month, 
uh, one should be sure that they are not stopping Putin. They are not stopping him. They are weakening Russia, but it will be another six months, a year, until Russia is down to... Um, It's down last to ruble. Yeah. 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 But am I going to be around for that long? This is the question that I'm asking. Uh, is my family going to be around for this long? Are we going to stand up for this long? This is a question that we are asking ourselves. How much longer? I mean, it feels like the next next month is crucial. If not, this turns into this long, protracted situation that we saw, say, in Donetsk for years, where people just continued to die and ever, the whole world stopped watching. This is the threat. This is what we are afraid of. Because you can, again, you can be super brave. You can be super ready. And then you just one evening you go to bed and there is a rocket coming into your house and that's it. And this is what we are afraid of. Kira Rudik, as always, thank you so much for your time. We wish you safety um, for, and, and thanks for sharing your thoughts with us tonight. Thank you so much. Well, let's get back to the one-month anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. The Prime Minister is in Brussels tonight, of course, to take part of those exceptional meetings, or specifically an exceptional NATO meeting tomorrow. G7 leaders are also meeting. President Biden is also there. But Justin Trudeau used a speech to the European Parliament today to urge European leaders to unite against Russian President Vladimir Putin and his invasion of Ukraine. We must ensure that the decision to invade a sovereign, independent country is understood to be a strategic failure that carries with it ruinous costs for Putin and Russia. As I mentioned, Trudeau will join other NATO leaders, including President Biden, tomorrow to coordinate the alliance's response to the Russian invasion. And that will follow, uh, a G7 leaders meeting will follow before he comes back here on Friday. Well, today, NATO Secretary General said the military organization is setting up new multinational battle groups in Eastern Europe to deter Russia from launching an attack on any Eastern NATO members. Here's Jens Stoltenberg. Putin must end this war. Allow aid and safe passage of civilians and engage in real diplomacy. Jens Stoltenberg, I guess the real issue here is that the war continues. Russia continues to bombard buildings in Ukraine. It's not doing a particularly effective job uh, so far. It certainly hasn't seized what they thought they would seize in just days. 72 hours has become a month with little to show for it, but the war at least and the death and the fleeing continues. Stoltenberg says NATO leaders will likely agree to send more assistance to Ukraine, including equipment to help the country protect against chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats. Can you imagine? So is it enough? Joining me now is Alexander Lenoshka. He's an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me again. I wanted to bring you back because It was exactly a month ago that you and I were on air as this invasion began. We essentially spoke as the invasion began. I want to take you back just a month uh, to hear what we had to say. I know this is a very fluid situation, um, but uh, what what have you been able to glean from what's unfolding uh, in Ukraine tonight? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. I wish that the circumstances were a lot better. Obviously, what is happening right now is quite staggering. I'm stunned. But what we know so far is that there have been explosions reported in various uh, Ukrainian cities, including even the capital city of Kiev, as well as the port city of Odessa. So this extends far beyond eastern Ukraine. Little did we know then, Alexander, what was about to happen, but 
look, let's look back over the last month. I mean, I think at the beginning, we all thought this might end very quickly, and it certainly hasn't. That was indeed the expectation of a lot of analysts who have studied Russian military affairs for quite some time now. The assessment has been that Russia had reconstituted its military in the last 10, 15 years, so much so that although Ukraine did also revitalize its own military, the Russian military would stand head above shoulders over what Ukraine could bring to uh, bear. And as such, Russia would have the capacity to go about strategic aims, namely to decapitate the Ukrainian leadership, to uh, take uh, Ukrainian cities, as well as to essentially bring the Ukrainian government down and to install a new one to sign some sort of a peace agreement that's extremely favorable to Russia. None of that has happened, however. I mean, even Kharkiv, which is, what, a 40-minute drive from the Russian border, even Kharkiv is still flying a Ukrainian flag tonight. I guess what it puts into question then is if it's been such a massive failure, at least according to the initial plans that they had, and then the bombardment of the cities begins. What doesn't, I mean, you would, you would think that everyone is going to have to completely reassess how this is going to play out now. And I'm wondering if you think we've done a good enough job of doing that. To be, to be sure, Russia has had some successes. It's not been a complete failure. It has taken some uh, cities, although, of course, not any of the big ones. It has taken cities like uh, Kherson and uh, Kherson or Melitopol or Berdyansk. It looks poised to take Mariupol. Um, it has taken territories uh, adjacent to those particular cities, but again, it falls far short of what um, it's initially tried to do. And so, of course, it's going to have to reassess. It's probably going to have to settle for something far less than uh, what the Kremlin initially wanted. And so that might mean, for instance, uh, new territories, especially in the Donbass, where at least at present, uh, Russian armed forces are having some success and might actually be able to cut off Ukrainian forces. But again, considering the costs involved, uh, this would, of course, would suggest that this entire exercise was simply not worthwhile from the Russian perspective. But nevertheless, war has a logic of its own. War begets more war. And so we're probably going to see some fighting uh, go on, no, notwithstanding the fact that uh, Russia is probably going to have to settle for far less uh, than what it initially set out to do. What's interesting now when you talk to people in Ukraine, of course, is that the dynamic has changed so fundamentally that they now think, people in Ukraine now think that Ukraine can win, that, th that they can essentially push Russia back out. Um, and I'm wondering if that's, if that's realistic. It depends on what you mean by win. So to some extent, not losing is a win on its own right. And Ukraine has not yet lost. It still seems to have its air defenses largely intact, its air force largely intact. It still seems to uh, have a lot of resolve, a lot of uh, forces that have been mobilized. seems like the Russian forces, in contrast, have been uh, plagued with very low morale and all sorts of logistical issues. And so success, I suppose, would really look like not only keeping their ground, but perhaps being able to launch a few counteroffensives of the sort that we've actually been seeing as of late. So to the west of Kyiv, near the city of Makariv, it appears that the Ukrainians are starting to uh, go on the counteroffensive against Russian forces. There are even rumors that uh, Russian forces uh, west of Kyiv are at risk of being encircled. I think there would probably be a traded 
over the coming days. Whether Ukraine will actually be able to fully reverse uh, Russia's uh, territorial advances, especially in the south and the east, I think that's going to be a little trickier. It's not unfeasible, uh, infeasible. We are seeing some movement in the southern direction near Mykolaiv, where the Russian advances have stalled. But again, do we see Ukraine going as far as um, what had been the line of contact in January of this year? That's going to be hard to tell. And I think it'll be very hard for Ukraine to reverse any of the territorial acquisitions made by Russia uh, since 2014, including, of course, uh, areas of Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea. Right. So then we sort of enter this kind of this long stalemate, like something something like we saw in Donetsk, which was de facto being controlled by Russian proxies. Uh, this idea of sort of um, destabilizing and, and sort of freezing a conflict that keeps Ukraine weak and surrounded to some extent, or at least with someone on its on its buffer the whole time. Um, which would be, you know, would not be a, a complete loss for Ukraine, but would certainly put it in a very precarious situation. I want to ask you about NATO, because we saw another announcement today about bolstering troops in places like Slovakia and Bulgaria. How dangerous do you think it is? How how dangerous is the situation right now for this to spill over into a NATO nation? For one, NATO has been reinforcing its presence in the so-called eastern flank, meaning countries like Poland the Baltic countries, Romania, and now even Slovakia, Hungary, and Bulgaria, in order to keep a lid on the conflict. I think there's this understanding in some circles that uh, NATO enlargement has been to blame for this war insofar as it might have provoked Russia into attacking Ukraine, because after all, Ukraine was seeking NATO membership. But I actually think it's the other way around in the sense that Russia has had these territorial ambitions for quite some time. It's had these revisionist aims. And what NATO does in the region is to restrain those countries that are to the west of Ukraine and Russia, countries like Poland, that absent their membership in the alliance, they might actually feel somewhat uh, compelled uh, to join the fray precisely because they fear that it might be Ukraine's turn now, but it'll be their turn later in terms of being the target of Russian aggression. So what NATO is doing is trying to bolster local deterrence and defense with the unstated uh, benefit of keeping those countries calm in the face of these dangers and thereby providing a source of important restraint that keeps the lid on this particular uh, conflict. I'm speaking with Alexander Lenoshka, an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about these big NATO meetings that are coming up shortly, actually, in Brussels, as well as what the big threats are going forward now that this war is entering a second month. Where are the, where do the threats lie and what can be done about them? That's coming up. I'm back with Alexander Lenoshka, Assistant Professor of International Relations at the University of Waterloo. We've been talking about the one-month anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We were speaking to each other actually one month ago tonight as the bombs started to fall uh, and had initial reaction to it at the time. Obviously, no one knew what to expect. No one knew what would come next. Uh, there were a lot of predictions that it could be over in a matter of days, given the perceived strength of the Russian military. That's not happened. Um, NATO are still 
working to figure out how to assist Ukraine. There's a big meeting there uh, coming up in uh, in Brussels. It's already Friday or Thursday morning in Brussels. They'll be meeting relatively soon. Justin Trudeau's there. Prime President Biden is there. What do you think will come out of this? Do you expect any big changes, uh, Alexander? Already, we've seen some very important announcements made. In fact, uh, one such announcement was the uh, decision by NATO to have four new multinational uh, battle groups positioned in Slovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, and Hungary. These mm-hmm. seem to be drawn already from the forces that already pl- are placed in those countries. And indeed, since uh, earlier this year, way before the invasion began, the United States and its uh, uh, Western European allies have started to pour in more forces into the theater precisely to bolster local deterrence and defense uh, efforts in uh, NATO's so-called eastern flank. What's interesting about these sorts of countries is that uh, some of them have been relatively friendly towards Russia in recent years, Hungary being one example, Slovakia, not necessarily entirely friendly to Russia, but not exactly pro-American either. Bulgaria historically has had fairly uh, warm ties with Russia. So there are already four battle groups um, positioned in Poland, the three Baltic countries. But in, in many cases, in many ways, those aren't as interesting because those countries have had fairly acrimonious relations with Russia. But the fact that we're seeing these battle groups now in Bulgaria even does tell you how much the security environment has changed and how it's changed really for the worse. I guess the other big question, of course, coming out of Ukraine, I don't think anyone's, I mean, they're still calling for a no-fly zone. I don't think that, I think everyone's aware that that's not going to happen. Do you see any alternatives to helping Ukraine protect its skies against this incessant bombardment of civilians by Russia? No-fly zones are a non-starter precisely because going about a no-fly zone would require NATO aircraft to engage with Russian air defense systems located either within Ukraine or without Ukraine, as well as Russian aircraft. And engaging those sorts of military assets that Russia has, there's a very clear pathway towards nuclear escalation. As such, no-fly zones are just not going to happen. But it does seem that in recent um, days, uh, Ukraine has modified its stance in a manner that I think is much more appropriate and more effective insofar as it's asking for greater and greater amounts of air defense systems that could be transferred from NATO countries. So there's talk of uh, Slovakia providing the S-300 to uh, Ukraine. It's a Soviet-era air defense system that Ukrainian air defense operators will probably be familiar with, and so it will require minimum training. There's even some talk of Turkey providing the S-400, which is much more state-of-the-art, and one that certainly was the object of much controversy because it's a fairly new uh, Russian air defense system, and the United States is trying to sell, or was trying to sell, F-35s to Turkey, so there was an obvious issue there. But that doesn't seem to be happening whatsoever. Right. I, I guess the other, you know, it, w- it was interesting to see my previous guest, Kara Rudik, who's a MP in Kiev, she's in Kiev tonight, was talking about the fact that it feels like NATO is a bodyguard standing by watching Ukraine get attacked, essentially. And I'm wondering if you think that it's at what point 
does push come to shove here, at least politically? There's a lot of pressure internally uh, on NATO leaders, certainly Canada and other countries to do more. So the pressure must be on at this meeting for them to come up with some kind of solution, as you were mentioning, to at least allow Ukraine to better defend itself. I don't think that assessment is fair of NATO. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I say that with the understanding that if I were Ukrainian, I'd probably say the exact same thing and feel the exact same way. But that being said, Ukraine is not part of NATO. It's not entitled to Article 5 obligations. That boundary between Poland, Romania, uh, Hungary, and Ukraine is a very real boundary and sets the limit of these sorts of alliance responsibilities. But that being said, NATO is not simply standing by as a bodyguard. It is funneling a lot of weapons. Um, in, in fact, just today, I think the United Kingdom announced about 3,000 new so-called defensive missiles. I don't know what that really means, right. but there you have it. Uh, I mentioned Slovakia might give this S-300. The United States and the United Kingdom have poured in thousands of anti-tank weapons. Canada has also provided... Uh, military gear. A lot of NATO countries at this point have provided military gear. Of course, those frontier countries have also hosted a lot of um, refugees fleeing the violence. Um, there's a lot of diplomatic support. Um, there are citizens joining um, foreign legions. There's a lot actually going on in terms of what NATO is providing. It's just not stepping into the fray directly. Um, it's doing everything short of that. Right. I guess that that was kind of the point is, is not getting involved in the fight, right? Which, of course, I mean, even even she understands diplomatically what those guardrails are. Uh, I, what do you, I mean, I was reading something, obviously, this caused a bit of a kerfuffle when it was published in the New York Times today that and for good reason, the Americans have put together, a, you know, an advisory group about what they might do if, in fact, uh, you know, Russia were to use chemical weapons or biological weapons or even nuclear weapons, uh, which is just good practice. But I mean, we only have a few more minutes left. But do you see this? Do you see this going into a stalemate, or are there any concerns that this may escalate now into something uh, that nobody wants to see? Yeah, I'm not sure why that caused a kerfuffle precisely because that's exactly what you want the United States government to do at this point. And indeed, it has thought about this problem in the past. This is not a new era. For the United States, we've had a Cold War. These were issues that were very much alive. They're uh, ideas that have already been in the ether to go about how to handle such a contingency. But to answer your question directly, yes, there is a pathway towards the use of weapons of mass destruction by uh, Russia. It might feel that it has totally lost the initiative. And so it might look at the precedent set in Syria, whereby... Russian-backed forces did use chemical weapons in uh, the Damascus neighborhood of Ghouta, and, and they used those chemical weapons to regain the initiative. They terrorized the population, um, they scattered opposing military forces, and they were able to extract key benefits from it. Now, whether that will actually happen in this particular war is another question. I think people have learned from the Syrian example as not... as, as uh, things as to what to do and what not to do. And I think Putin has looked at some previous crises for cues as to how the West would respond, but that has underserved him precisely because the response of the West so far to his war in Ukraine has been far more in excess of what he expected. Alexander Lenushka, thank you so much for your time tonight on the one month anniversary. We spoke again. Thank you very much again for having me. 
Let's talk about rents these days. I've been a renter for most of my life. I've owned a home as well. Oh, I still own a home and rent. The home's in a different city. Um, the perils of moving around for a job. Renting these days, certainly if you're trying to find a new place, has become really cost prohibitive for a lot of people. Certainly out here in BC, Vancouver, Victoria, always among the most expensive, lowest vacancy rates, you name it. Um, so when it comes to a surprise for anyone who's tried to rent a place in somewhere like Vancouver or Toronto, that rent, prices of rent are climbing fast. So rentals.ca is an online rental agency. They do a monthly list of what rent is costing these days and how much it's up year over year. So a two-bedroom apartment in Vancouver is up 17% over last year. It's now more than $3,000 on average to rent a two-bedroom apartment in Vancouver. In Toronto, it's up 15% to just under $2,800. And we're seeing those same increases in the suburbs of those cities as well, the Surreys, the Etobicos, the Oakvilles, and so forth. Elsewhere, rent is up to Windsor, 5%, Montreal, 5%, Kingston, Ontario, 17% year over year. So forget trying to buy something. We know how unaffordable that is these days for most people. People are now struggling with the fast rising cost of just trying to keep a roof over their head, especially, especially if you're either moving, get forced out of the place you're in, or are moving to a new city altogether. So what's driving it and what can be done to help? Joining me now is Tom Davidoff. He's an associate professor at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. Tom, thank you for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I guess we've, we've noticed, especially here in BC, we really have noticed a significant jump, we think, in the cost of renting. Um, and I'm just wondering if you're seeing the same thing and what might be, be what's behind it, do you think? Yeah, anecdotally, my understanding is uh, the market has gotten uh, much uh, more challenging for renters, uh, fewer places uh, to rent and, and rents rising relative to where we were earlier in COVID, where people were getting a bit of a break closer to downtown, uh, because of course COVID um, reduced demand for urban living, uh, if it increased it for suburban living. Where do you think the, the pressures are coming from? I mean, everyone understands if you're spending, if you're buying an investment property and the cost for what you're paying for it is, is much higher than it was, necessarily that will be passed down if you rent it, I would imagine. But is, is that what's going on or is it something more complex than that? No, you know, with prices, I do think lower interest rates have made it economically cheaper to own housing and that's increased the demand to own uh, property. Now, to the extent uh, investors are outbidding owner-occupiers, that should actually give a bit of a break to renters. I think what's happening on the rental side is uh, the pickup again of immigration. I think uh, that that's on again. Students are back in university. And so in emptying out briefly of cities that had happened is getting undone. And we're on to the old problem of a, you know, significant immigration into Canada every year among people who, of course, many of whom would like to live in Victoria or Vancouver. Uh, and a difficult supply environment. We've got mountains, oceans, and strict regulations. That makes it hard to build enough housing to keep up with demand. And so uh, we are becoming a scarcer and scarcer resource that's in greater and greater demand. When you look at what the impact then of that is when rentals start to jump, uh, how does it trickle through the economy when, when people are paying more and more money? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the first thing you think is when the economy is doing better, rents tend to rise. It's both population and incomes drive rents. 
to the extent rents rise, that's, you know, it's not a loss of money in the system. It's a transfer of resources uh, from renters who tend to be younger and lower income to landlords who tend to either be financial institutions like pension funds uh, or uh, their uh, affluent uh, in- investor class people. And so, you know, that's a bit of a transfer of resources. Maybe you get a little bit more saving and a little bit less spending when you have a transfer from someone with low income to high income. But I don't think we're talking about, other than, of course, it's unfortunate uh, that people struggle to find a place they can afford. Uh, there's no, you know, macro adverse consequence, except, you know, maybe maybe some mismatch people move out of markets where they'd have the best employment prospects because they can't find a place to live. In the BC context, I think one of the things that's been interesting too is we're seeing this rental increase start to to move into areas that were traditionally less expensive than than the big cities, less expensive than the Vancouver's and the Victorias. Uh, certainly, the cost of housing has gone up in places like Kelowna, places like Nanaimo, but rents too appear to be increasing. At least that's what I'm hearing anecdotally that rents are going up in those markets as well, quite dramatically. Yeah, and and that's been happening in Kelowna previously. Uh, I think uh, a lot of the province was already seeing that, but that really got exacerbated by the uh, COVID uh, shutdown where work from home became possible. And so people looked for places where uh, you could get more space for less money, the so-called drive to qualify uh, on steroids, uh, if you like. And uh, an interesting question is whether work from home is going to persist. If it doesn't, if uh, the bell rings and everybody needs to come back to the office, you wonder if you won't see a uh, almost equal decrease in rents and prices in the outlying areas. One thing I have been reading about is the sort of the not not a sudden, but certainly a more pronounced interest from large investors, as you mentioned earlier, private equity, pension funds and so forth in investing in residential property uh, and how that might change the market somewhat. Do you see that at all? Or is that just one of those things that's out there as a possible explanation, but not proven? Well, we've certainly uh, heard anecdotal evidence of increased interest in institutions. It's in the U.S. I don't think you see it so much here. There was one company that was in the news, but in the U.S. you do have um, large funds getting together and actually buying detached homes. Uh, as opposed to apartments, which are more typically, you know, rental properties. Uh, it makes sense, though. Interest rates are coming up at the moment. I don't know how much room they have to rise, but we're still in, in a low interest rate and rapid rent growth environment. And in that environment, it actually does make a lot of sense that you would see deep-pocketed financial institutions, maybe high-net-worth individuals, but also uh, pension funds, real estate investment trusts, getting a relatively larger share of properties because they've got the deep pockets to pay the value uh, that we see when, when, when interest rates fall and rent growth rises. You know, the value of a property when interest rates are high and rents aren't going anywhere is, you know, approximately 20 years of rent. When interest rates are low and uh, rent growth is high, well, it could be 50, 75 years worth of rent could be the fundamental value of a property. And in that world, it's very hard for uh, a working family to be able to afford to purchase their own home. And it's just going to make more sense uh, for an institution to rent to them. Does it make a difference when institutions, in terms of the way 
tenants are treated? Does it make a difference when institutions who really are looking for a maximum return? Let's be honest. Yeah, um, I haven't seen convincing evidence of that. You right. hear people say, well, you know, when a real estate investment trust buys out the nice mom and pop who really weren't in it for the money and were really great landlords, you know, maybe. But, uh, you know, do you want to see the Donald Trumps of the world replacing your pension fund as uh, your landlord? I, I don't really buy that. I think we are seeing the pension funds come in because rents are rising. I don't think rents are rising because of pension funds or REITs. I'm speaking with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor at the Souter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about the rising cost of rent, specifically in British Columbia, where it really has gone up in Vancouver and Victoria quite dramatically over the last year or so. But also anecdotally, we're seeing that obviously in places like Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, where rents are also rising or have risen quite quite a bit since a slight dip at the beginning of the pandemic. After this, we'll talk a bit, bit about what can be done to try to bring rents back down a bit, or at least provide more rentals for people who need them. That's after this. I'm back with Tom Davidoff, Associate Professor at the Souter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. We've been talking about the rising cost of rent, certainly something that we hear a lot about, uh, how much they're rising. It remains somewhat anecdotal, but we do see the cost of the average one-bedroom, two-bedroom apartments really on the rise in places such as Vancouver in Victoria. Is there anything that can be done? Because we know as we head into these election cycles, whether it be provincial or, or federal, I guess we won't be seeing a federal election for a while probably, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, when we do go into these cycles, we see lots of promises made about about housing, and it seems like very often not much has changed. Do you think there's anything that policymakers can do to try to tackle the rental issue? Absolutely. There's two real areas of uh, low-hanging fruit in terms of policy, and those are taxes and uh, zoning. So taxes in British Columbia, we're very reliant on income and sales taxes to fund our education our income redistribution, our police, fire, whatever, uh, you know, mostly on income and sales tax and not very much on property tax. If you raised property taxes and cut, say, sales taxes, that would hurt homeowners and help renters. So uh, I actually think that would be more economically efficient because it is so difficult to build. You wouldn't really be scaring much activity off. And it would just be a more sensible way to uh, to fund our, our public goods. But that is a, a politically very heavy lift. And I don't think you're going to see anybody run for office saying, yeah, I want to raise uh, property taxes on garden variety property owners anytime soon. So that's one direction. The other direction where I do think we're going to see action and where the government has been hinting at more action uh, is in terms of land use policy. So I'm near the University of British Columbia, where you know many, many students uh, and faculty come every day enough to justify building a SkyTrain extension out here. Uh, and yet, uh, a few blocks away from campus, you have estate-style zoning in the university endowment plans run by the province. And that's just unjustifiable. I mean, why, you, know, you could build 20-story apartments uh, that would be worth many millions of dollars uh, to the province uh, if, if that zoning were sold off. Uh, but catering to a very small number of homeowners, uh, they sort of preserve the neighborhood amenity by keeping things low rise. We just saw in Oak Bay, I think after nine years, a uh, project, and I I don't know the merits of it, but apparently one that really was pretty consistent with what was already there, uh, getting outright rejected. And about 70%, maybe 80% of uh, land in the province that's residentially zoned can't be more than single family detached. And, you know, 
no, no, no kids growing up today really are expecting to be able to buy a single family detached home. It's an absurd waste of land uh, that subsidizes uh, people rich enough to buy it and penalizes renters. So you've got to open up our urban and suburban land to townhomes and apartment buildings. And doing that can both raise money because governments are able to sell off zoning. So you can raise money for important issues like um, providing houses to people experiencing homelessness while also bringing down the cost of housing uh, for everybody. And I know this is particularly acute in places like Vancouver, where property is limited. Uh, Southern Vancouver Island is similar. But I imagine this problem zoning issue exists sort of patchwork across the country. Uh, Yeah, it depends where you are, of course. You know, I'm guessing, you know, there's certainly markets where it's okay. You know, single family is relatively affordable and, and not a crazy use of land. Uh, but when a single family home costs $2 million to say that for the government to intervene and say that that's what has to go on the land, even though the market wants to build apartments, it's hard to call that anything other than socialism for the rich. It, it is politically, though, always such a sensitive topic, topic because I watch it unfold at every level of government, whether it be municipal, provincial, federal. The idea of getting people, well, specifically municipal. Getting people to agree to zoning changes can be can be a really heavy lift, as you mentioned, politically, specifically, because you come face to face with your voters who don't want high density right. on, on their on, in their neighborhoods. Right. And, and, and a mistake in British Columbia, and it's not only in British Columbia, it's almost everywhere. It's that land use is controlled at a hyper local level. Right. So everybody recognizes that we need affordable housing, but nobody wants it in their backyard. I think almost everybody would prefer to have trees rather than neighbors. And so why would a city council say yes? There are carrots already, right? Which is that if you allow what's currently single family, low density neighborhoods to be uh, converted into apartments, you can make developers pay for that, right? And that means, yes, the neighbors are angry, but some of the neighbors get to sell their land for a lot of money and others get bike lanes or libraries or what have you. What you need though is a stick. When you've got 20 jurisdictions in a single metropolitan area, each making land use decisions, thinking about only their own benefit and most likely ignoring the needs of the rest of the region, uh, it's inevitable that you're going to underprovide affordable housing and zoning for apartments. And so the province absolutely needs to step in to coordinate that by saying, hey, you know, you guys didn't meet your uh, your, uh, development uh, target last year. We told you you could do it. You could raise money doing it. You failed to do it. I think the punishment ought to be you guys have to pay higher property tax this year, and that'll teach you uh, to uh, fail to approve more multifamily housing. Have you seen so far in the push, and I know there has been a push, to try and force developers to build more affordable properties as part of their developments? Have you seen that succeed so far, or is that still very much a work in progress? Well, it, it, it's certainly something governments do. You know, my personal view uh, is that a, well, and also a professional view is that it's much wiser. Uh, to do what Burnaby and Vancouver and other jurisdictions have done quite successfully, which is to let builders build uh, whatever's most profitable, but sell uh, the zoning, right? So when you're giving a zoning variance to a developer and letting them build a tall building, you can do one of two things. You can say, give us a bunch of money, or you can hold a lottery for, uh, you know, which most families will benefit zero from, but one family will get a giant prize of a house they wouldn't buy if they were given cash. Uh, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. The last question I had for you is just because it came up this week in conversation. 
um, you know, there was a time when people thought, oh, the boomers will retire. Uh, they'll give up their homes and there'll be homes for everyone. They'll be homes for the next generation. It's coming up behind them. Now it seems like most younger people starting out their careers now start them out with this idea that they'll never actually own a home or, or may struggle to own a home, meaning they're sort of confined to being renters for the foreseeable future. Do you think that's correct? Or is that just a, a very short, is that, is that just a nature of just how severe the pressures are right now? Well, it makes more sense to rent an apartment. You know, uh, if you're going to rent a property, it makes more sense to rent an apartment, have a landlord tenant relationship in an apartment building uh, than in a single family home, just as a matter of sort of operational efficiency. So as we see less single family housing in more apartments, I think we're likely to see more rental. And again, should we continue to see uh, persistent low interest rates in a world where rents are rising considerably over time, the idea that the traditional model where you have a 10, 5 to 20% down payment and spend you know, maybe 30, 40 years of your life paying off the, the value of the home with a third of your income, that math just gets very tricky because that house can be worth more than 30 or 40 years of 30% of your income and assembling that down payment gets challenging. So I think, you know, normalizing renting, recognizing, encouraging people that you can save in other forms other than owner housing uh, is, of course, a, a natural policy because I, I don't believe a lot of people are going to, a huge fraction of uh, young people are going to be able to buy. I think a lot of them are going to be stuck renting. Uh, which isn't probably most people's favorite. But, you know, it gives you a lot of flexibility. Moving is a lot cheaper when you're a renter. You're not putting all your eggs in one financial basket. So if you're able to sell, uh, you know, invest in equities uh, with the money you'd be paying to pay off your loan, uh, it's not clear that you're necessarily much worse over the course of a life. Tom Davidoff, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for your time. What you make of that NDP liberal deal yesterday, the supply and confidence agreement, probably depends on your politics. It will keep the liberals in power till 2025, at least, apparently, or at least till the next election, which isn't meant to be in the fall of 2025. But regardless of your politics, there were some initiatives in there that were kind of interesting and worth looking at. One of the biggest ones is one of the biggest healthcare initiatives since Medicare was created ages ago. Ottawa is planning to launch an income-tested national dental program in phases. In 2020, the Parliamentary Budget Officer estimated the plan would cost about $1.5 billion a year, impact about 6.5 million uninsured Canadians. The PPO also noted that the government would face a one-time cost of about $3 billion to cover untreated cavities in that first eligible population. It sounds like a really good idea. Oral health, or at least dental health, has been a problem, is a problem. It is expensive. We were talking about how expensive rent is. We talked for ages about how expensive inflation is making everything. Getting access to less expensive dental care would seem like a really good idea. But how will it work? Who will run it? Will it be run properly? How much will it cost? And how do you set it up? Joining me now is Dr. Carlos Quinones. He's a professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto, and he's also author of a very prescient book called The Politics of Dental Care in Canada. Dr. Quinones, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. I know this is something you've been talking about for a long time. It's been circulating politically for a long time, too. Were you pleasantly surprised or surprised at least to see this come to fruition in some sorts yesterday? I was pleasantly surprised. You know, as you say, uh, this is a long time coming. Uh, 
uh, uh, researchers like myself and uh, advocacy efforts have been pushing for uh, something like this for, for I would say, you know, close to 25, 30 years, maybe even more. And we have seen incremental gains across the provinces and territories uh, for about, you know, let's say 20 years now. Um, but then to have the federal government step in and, and provide its own tailor-made solution, whatever that may, may look like, and how may and how they may roll that out is still to be seen. But nonetheless, it's 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 very welcome, uh, and I think many in our community, including dentists, dental hygienists, and dental assistants, and everybody involved in this area, poverty advocates—I mean, you name it. This is this is very welcome. Who will it cover? Because I know it's, and this is sort of would be an expanding program, but it starts off with a very specific uh, group in need, which is kids. So as of now, we really only have a small paragraph um, in the confidence and supply agreement between the NDP and the Liberals uh, that explains what is, uh, uh, who is going to be covered. And for the first year, they said it's going to be um, children 12 years under. Um, uh, I think the following year it's going to include um, adults, seniors, individuals with um, uh, disabilities, uh, a group or two, so pardon me. And then ultimately uh, they state that there's going to be full Im- implementation of the program by 2025. Um, it's also uh, income tested. Um, if you make less than $90,000 a year, a family that makes less than that will be eligible. And if you make less than $70,000 a year as a family, then you won't have to pay any co-pays. So again, that implies that when be a 90K, you will have to pay um, some extra care. Um, that's, again, an issue that needs to be fleshed out, meaning how many people in a family. Um, you know, with that said, I think those are good good numbers in terms of an income threshold because we're not just dealing with the you know individuals with no income or very low income or even low income i think at that stage you're you're kind of in the working poverty area the uh, working poverty um um sort of segment or, or middle income segment of the population um based on based on statistics canada um estimates so i think it reaches into areas that we now know um are having challenges in, in accessing dental care from an affordability perspective yeah, tell me about that. We were t- we talk about inflation all the time. Um, I've heard you quoted or seen you quoted saying that you know families right now are having to make some really difficult choices when it comes to dental care, and what kind of impact that has in a bunch of different areas. Well, let me just quickly give you a background on the landscape of public dental care in this country. Um, you know, most provinces and territories have public programs that focus on low-income kids. Uh, low-income families, um, but we do a lot more for the kids than we do for the adults in these families, um, um, meaning we provide kids a, a suite of services and the adults really just get some basic um, pain management and some dentures for missing front teeth and so on. And I'm making generalizations here. Right. Um, uh, and then uh, there are some programs for people with uh, disabilities and then some fo- some provinces and territories do stuff for low-income seniors, but it's a real patchwork. So um, the problem with that, though, is that if you have no income or low income, you uh, can receive the benefits of having um, a a public dental care program. But the minute you are employed and you have low wage work uh, or work that doesn't provide you with any type of um, dental insurance, you really start falling through the cracks. Um, Then at the sort of the top end of the spectrum are folks like myself who have good, stable jobs with employer-sponsored benefits, very good benefits often. 
Um, and you know, we, we, we're, we're okay to a large extent, but it's really those, let's just say those people in the middle. So that whole idea of, you know, squeezing the middle class, I think, I think that applies here a little bit. Um, we're also dealing a little bit with the issue of underinsurance, meaning folks that have low wage work, but do have the benefit of some type of insurance. But one can imagine if you're covered for, let's just say $600 a year and your copay is 250, you know, that, that, that will only take you so far, especially if you have major oral healthcare needs. Um, so, you know, if anybody's yeah. been to the dentist lately, pardon me, you, you can, you, you know, it's, it's, it's rather expensive. I mean, obviously, and, and we're used to, I mean, in some senses, we're used to Medicare. And, and obviously, when you go to the dentist, you're faced, even when you're insured to some extent, but if you're not insured, I can't imagine the barrier that that would present. How many Canadians out there right now are having to make difficult decisions, do you think, about spending money at the dentist? Well, we know from latest estimates, I think at about 2017-18 from the Canadian Community Health Survey, that about one in five Canadians report that they haven't been able to go to the dentist because of cost. Um, one in three uh, Canadians also say that they don't have any type of public or private coverage. And we know that coverage is really, really important in terms of offsetting the cost of dental care and facilitates, facilitates access to and utilization of dental care to a great degree. So, you know, it can be quite, quite meaningful to you as a family to be able to have that coverage, especially if you're, again, in the middle income category or low income category, because the trade-offs can be quite severe. We've done research among working poor families uh, to show that they trade off things like toys for the kids, um, night school, uh, you know, think about that, giving up educational opportunities to advance your life or career uh, in order to, in order to, um, access dental care. And then we've also done research among food insecure working poor families, families, meaning those folks that might not be able to afford the quality or the quantity of the food that they would like. Um, but, you know, that's a big, big problem in Canada, unfortunately. Um, um, you know, those folks give up, you know, trade off food to be able to access dental care. So it's really just not a good situation. And again, that's why this program is so welcome. If you're just joining a little more conversation, I'm speaking with Dr. Carlos Quinonez, a professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto and author of The Politics of Dental Care in Canada. We're talking about an announcement, at least in the supply and confidence agreement between the Liberals and the NDP yesterday about plans for a the beginnings of a national dental care program. Clearly, though, and, and, and I know this, I've seen this reported often, if you don't treat oral health issues early, they become health issues later, and that strains the entire system. So this is a bit of an ounce of prevention and cure scenario. Yes, I would agree. But let me let me just sort of correct um, or, or give you a, a better sense of what you're saying. I, I agree mm. with everything you're saying. But, mm. you know, I want to challenge the idea that oral health problems eventually become health problems. You know, oral health is health, right? So right. the minute you have an oral health problem, you have a health problem, right? Right. And it can be quite severe. I don't know if you've ever had a toothache, Ben, um, sure. or know anybody who has had one. I Indeed. Mean, they, can, they can be quite brutal. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. in fact, for uh, hundreds and thousands of years, dental pain was so common that it became, you know, the, the, you know, what philosophers talked about and what scientists talked about when they wanted to understand the nature of pain, right? Right. Um, it, it's, it's a big, big deal. And that could lead to a whole host of problems, you know, uh, you know, hospitalization, even death in some rare cases. And thank mm-hmm. goodness it's rare, but it, it can happen. I'm speaking with Dr. Carlos Quinones, a professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto and author of The Politics of Dental Care in Canada. We're talking about uh, plans announced yesterday for the beginnings of a national dental care program. And we'll get to whether this is the best way 
of implementing it, whether to go through a federal program or to work through the provinces, as some are suggesting, and we'll get to that after this. I'm back with Dr. Carlos Quinones, a professor in the Faculty of Dentistry at the University of Toronto and author of The Politics of Dental Care in Canada. We're talking about an announcement yesterday as part of an agreement between the NDP and the Liberals um, to begin at least a national dental care program that would at least at the beginning apply to children and and then uh, under the age of 12 and then expand uh, more broadly. It's also income tested. is this the most effective way of doing it? I've been reading over the last 24 hours some suggestions that maybe we should work through a provincial system that's already in place, uh, work through the provinces, or is a national federal program really the best answer you think? So this is where I think the, you know, sort of the, the, the details are, are, are need to be fleshed out. We need to look underneath the hood of this thing per se and get a sense of how this is going to work out. If it goes in line with what the NDP were were were, were promoting earlier on in, in previous elections, then it would be some type of direct federal program. Now that's not unheard of. There's a direct federal uh, health, uh, dental health and health program generally for First Nations and Inuit populations, um, but that has to do with a very specific relationship between the Canadian state and Indigenous groups. Um, but they also do it for veterans. They also do it for refugees. So you know the idea that there's a direct role for for financing and delivering healthcare uh, for the federal government is not unheard of nor is it new but yeah traditionally in canada most of these things uh function at the provincial and territorial level so it, it to me it remains to be seen whether uh, money will flow from the feds uh, to the provinces and territories to make some something like this happen you know, I, I see comments uh, from government to suggest that it's going to be the former, the, the the direct program. But again, I really think that 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 is still to be determined. Um, and you know, as you say, is this the best approach? You know, as somebody who's been involved in this area for so long and has wanted to see something like this for so long, you know, I'll take what happens. You know, uh, uh, whether it's direct or or through the provinces or territories. You know, yeah, each has its pros and cons, but I'm just glad something has happened. I saw that the PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, estimated a plan like this would cost about $1.5 billion a year and that there would be sort of a big one-time cost to handle an influx of people taking advantage of this uh, of this care early. Is is that really well spent? Yeah, very much so. You know, people, for, well, I don't want to say people forget, but we should never forget that investing in Canadians is investing in Canadian society, is investing in the economy, is investing in our in our quality of life. So I don't think that's money that is poorly spent. I do think, though, again, the devil is in the details and we need to pay attention to what we put our money into. You know, there's a lot of dental care that, you know, doesn't necessarily um, um, bring immediate health benefits. You know, for example, you know, there's people that don't have any amount of periodontal disease, uh, but they're used to going to the dentist every six months or every nine months or every year to get their teeth clean. That's wonderful. I do that. But you need to start asking questions about whether that's good use of money in the context of a public program. Why? Because there are people that have significant levels of oral disease that need to go to the dentist every three months, every four months. So I think we need to get a little bit more strategic in terms of how we allocate our resources and, and, and what we're set, how we're setting priorities or what we're setting our priorities to be in terms of the types of services we want to cover, as well as where we want to cover them, right? We can do it in private dental clinics or private dental offices, which everybody's very familiar with. And that's wonderful. That's a great solution. And it'll probably be the major solution. 
But there are also populations and you know here that would probably benefit from going to a community health clinic or 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 uh, here in Ontario a public health unit clinic, um, you know, or even where I'm at right now in, in a dental school. I mean, here at the University of Toronto, we we serve thousands of people every year, um, and so point is. I think a variety of service delivery environments would be positive, uh, which ultimately leads to the whole issue of the devils in the details and what is going to be covered, how is it going to be covered. We've already talked about, you know, how the money will flow or potentially how the money may flow. You know, in the end, I think there's an opportunity to do things in a very creative way that doesn't really disturb the current system to any great degree because it is working very well for many people like myself. Um and uh, yeah, so I think we have a healthy system. We just now need to sort of fix fix what's wrong with it. And I think this is a great step. Anytime a government comes out with a program like this, there's always sort of a ripple effect or at least a domino effect within the system. Do we have enough dentists to do this, to, to meet demand? And is there any danger here that, that employers start to drop uh, basic coverage because the government would step in? Well, again, this is where I think there needs to be discussions with, between employer employer groups, uh, between benefits carriers, between oral health care professional groups, whether it be dentists, dental hygienists, dentures, dental therapists, so on and so forth, as to what, what are the implications of something like this. You know, I think if you live in, you know, I'm assuming you're in Vancouver, Ben? Uh, Victoria. Victoria. So I'm yeah. assuming that in places like Vancouver, Victoria, Toronto, Winnipeg, Edmonton, there's a lot of supply, right? Yeah. Um, but I think the issue becomes, well, what if you live in a, in a, in a rural or a, a remote or semi-remote region of, of this country? You know, th- that is an access issue that's been present that putting more money uh, into a program isn't going to solve, right? Uh, we need strategies to be able to give folks that live in these communities access to care. And yeah, maybe we'll take care of some of the financing issues. But we also need to sort of think about um, labor supply in, in, in places that may not necessarily be, you know, overflowing with with dentists and dental offices and, and the like. But again, I think ultimately we need to have a, a sit down with the major stakeholder groups to think how something like this might work. And ultimately, to me, those are very healthy discussions because there's this to me presents a wonderful opportunity to address some of the p- things that have sort of plagued our oral healthcare system for a long time that from my perspective require a little bit of attention. So, you know, I, you know, I'm an, I'm a, a half glass full type of person. So let's just try to see what we can do given this great opportunity. What will you be looking for next? Uh, I, I mean, the timeline seems very ambitious for a government program. I know you've mentioned that it already is in place for certain groups. So it's not like they have to reinvent the wheel, as was, I think, mentioned by other groups uh, yesterday. Uh, but the timeline seems ambitious, ambitious. So what are you looking for next? And does the timeline really matter or should we just get this right? Uh, I, I'm very much with you on the last point here um, that, you know, uh, to me, the timeline doesn't necessarily matter that much. I'd rather just get it right. I have seen some provincial programs sort of make a big splash and, you know, a big push to try to make them happen. And when they, when, when they, you know, begin sort of fall flat a little bit, and that's not what we want here, given, given the great opportunity that we have. Um, so what I would like to see is I'd like to see some discussion. I'd like to see some, you know, work to bring people together, um, um, you know, and, and, and provide some advice to, to, to government to, to, you know, to, to to get the information out there, you know, there's a lot of expertise from dentists, uh, from other oral health care professionals, from researchers like myself across this country, from poverty advocates, from the patients themselves. I mean, this is standard practice in terms of rolling something like this out. And I hope and I hope uh, the federal government takes that seriously. 
Dr. Carlos Quinones, thank you so much for your time and your insight tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. 